Good afternoon. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. We often hear uh, about the need for business to give back to, to society or to community as if uh, business had taken something to begin with or was somehow acting unethically. Politicians regularly scorn uh, businesses for putting profits before people. President Obama and other leading U.S. Uh, politicians have urged Americans, especially young Americans, to set aside their ambitions to become successful businessmen and instead to do something useful, such as uh, volunteering in a community kitchen, for example. And, of course, volunteering and, and charity are noble uh, pursuits. But in the public discourse, uh, they are portrayed as somehow uh, nobler than business or indeed opposed to, to business because of its uh, own moral deficiencies. And businesses are then urged to pursue missions and goals that may or uh, may not be worthy, but that are unrelated to its core activities. The campaign to transform the way business operates, including the social, corporate social responsibility movement, has gone international. Our speaker today will explain why she's written a book critical uh, not only of the flawed assumptions behind these uh, attacks on business, but why such ill-founded views are especially harmful in developing countries where billions of, of people uh, depend uh, precisely on the liberating uh, and growth potential that only businesses uh, can offer. It is especially worrisome that the anti-business uh, bias is one that uh, uh, reflects concerns of the, uh, prevalent in rich countries, but that misreads the reality of poor countries. Thus, uh, international campaigns such as the Millennium Development Goals place no emphasis on the importance of growth or the role of, uh, of business in lifting people out of poverty. The hostility to business is ironic, as my colleague David Bowes likes to point out, at the end of the day, all individuals and organizations, including charities and anti-business NGOs, ultimately get their money from uh, businesses that create wealth to begin with. Even government, which has no money of its own, uh, gets its funding, some would say takes its funding, from the wealth-creating uh, activity of businesses. Indeed, there is no other way to create wealth and progress that does not depend on business. Anne Bernstein, uh, our speaker uh, and uh, the author that we are featuring today, would like to provide a developing country view on the role of business in society. In doing so, she is also calling on businesses not to acquiesce in the face of uh, misguided pressure for businesses to change their core missions, and is calling on business leaders to vigorously promote market economics and to defend uh, uh, their role as the powerful instruments of progress and innovation and development that businesses are. Anne Bernstein is the uh, founding director of the Center for Development and Enterprise in Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a very well-regarded leading think tank in South Africa. She is the author of The Case for Business in Developing Economies. She has been a fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy. She has been a faculty member at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and she has authored uh, several books, including Migration and Refugee Policies and Business and Democracy, Cohabitation or Contradiction 
co-authored with Peter Berger. Please help me welcome Ann Bernstein. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I think we take the benefits of market economics, market economies, capitalism so much for granted that most of the time we don't even understand or appreciate it. Of course, this is not a perfect system. But then, what is the alternative? Now, how we describe reality and therefore what we do about it really matters. Let me give you two examples. Many people come to South Africa and they go to our rural areas where people are extraordinarily poor and they ask themselves what they can do to help those people in that community. In fact, the best answer for very many rural people is to urbanize. That's what the rest of the world has done and the correlation between urbanization and expanding economic opportunity and many other opportunities for people is, is remarkable. An Indian example is also illustrative. A very senior civil servant, Vijay Kelka, said a few years ago, we got more done for the poor by pursuing the competition agenda for a few years than we got done by pursuing a poverty agenda for decades. Now, the battle of ideas really does matter. And the battle of ideas about business and the good society, business and development, is of great importance across the globe. I've been involved in this battle for all of my professional life. In apartheid South Africa, I worked for a business-funded organization, the country's largest NGO, and we used the resources and influence of of business leaders and their companies to help bring down one of the key pillars of apartheid. In the 1990s, I was called as an expert witness at South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission when they held a week-long hearing on the role of business under apartheid South Africa. This was a fascinating and very curious week of events a rather moralistic experience where many of the commissioners really wanted business to come in and say, I'm terribly sorry for everything I did, and now you must just tell me what I must do in future. And one businessman got rather irritated with this tone. And at one point he said very loudly, listen, let's just all be honest with each other would you rather that Sir Ernest Oppenheimer had never come to South Africa, started the De Beers Company, the Anglo-American Mining Company, two of the largest companies on the continent, global players? Would you rather he hadn't come to South Africa at all and sailed on by to develop Australia instead? And I thought that was a rather fundamental question, worthy of some examination. But it wasn't what the Truth Commission was set up to deal with. Nor were they set up to deal with the rather interesting comment made by President Nelson Mandela the morning I was called to give evidence. I was listening to the radio, and President Mandela 
was in China, and from the steps of the Forbidden City, he said, he called on South African business to invest in China. I thought that was also interesting, a country not exactly known for their human rights record. I then spent time in Washington a few years ago, and I was struck by what I was listening to and hearing. It soon became apparent that a good company, as defined in Washington, was one that complied with our ideas and standards, labor, environment, and social issues, that was devised by experts and some of their governments in the world's richest countries on how companies should behave in poorer countries. And you can participate in a conversation in London or Brussels or Washington and New York, and it is totally taken for granted that global standards are a good thing for the world. No one really wanted to listen to me piping up, and they didn't want to listen to more important people. They didn't want to hear the ex-president of Mexico who argues... Why is it that just as goods and services from poorer countries are starting to become globally competitive, that rich countries want us to conform to standards that have taken them centuries to reach? People don't want to listen to over 2,000 trade unions in India who are opposed to these standards. Nobel laureate Paul Krugman and others have put it very well when they say that the alternative to low-paying jobs is not high-paying jobs. It's no jobs at all. Well, all of these experiences led me to write this book and to try and construct a developing country perspective on business and its role in promoting the good society. Now, today I'm going to give you a taste of some of the key issues in my book rather quickly. I'm going to mainly deal with the positive consequences of just doing business. And I'll introduce the notion of invisible corporate citizenship. I'll mention international campaigns about companies and their role in global poverty. I will briefly mention what, what more companies can do and then end by talking about what I'm calling the real business agenda. Let me start then on just doing business. Companies are continually being pressurized to do more, to demonstrate what benefits they provide society in addition to just making money. It's as though profit-making entities need to redeem themselves through good works, pay reparations for their existence, and this then leads to the development of what I think Clive when he was at The Economist, called the corporate social responsibility industry. The current conversation about business is, in my view, fundamentally flawed, and the debate about responsible corporations takes for granted the everyday activities of companies and what they contribute by just doing that. And it's only in this way that it's possible to focus so much attention on what else a company must do to contribute to the social good. Now, business leaders and their companies have mostly responded to the attacks on profit-making as a respectable contribution to society, but I think what you can only call intellectual collapse 
In almost all cases, business leaders have given in without a struggle and accepted the general charge that companies do need to do more than just business in order to contribute. Instead of boldly and persuasively making the case for business, we have seen a process of appeasement. Now, any conversation about business and what it does or should do needs to take place, in my view, within a comprehensive understanding of what just doing business actually contributes. We need to start the conversation by looking at all of these positive benefits before I'm prepared to talk about anything else companies should do. Now, you can divide normal company activities and their impact into what I've called direct and indirect impacts. These are not very satisfactory terms, and one of the, I think, conclusions I've come to is we don't really have a good language to even describe the positive impact of companies and the associated issues. What are direct impacts? I think you could say that modern business is the most powerful engine ever invented of innovation, of large-scale organization, and transmission of know-how across frontiers. That's, of course, in addition to those minor things like creating wealth, jobs, paying taxes, things we all depend on. Now, the limited liability corporation has been called by some authors the greatest single discovery of modern times. The mechanism through which companies increase the pool of capital available for productive investment. It allows investors to spread their risk by purchasing small and easily marketable shares in several enterprises. And it provides a way of imposing effective management structures on large organizations. It also has the capacity to fail with relatively low social costs. And it's through this mechanism that today's corporations can finance and manage large-scale operations. Companies are uniquely effective in making human effort productive. Specialized resources in the form of labor, raw and finished materials, capital and knowledge come together in a remarkable process that transforms these components into goods and services of greater value. In so doing, they make a revolutionary contribution to the world in which we all live. Now, former CEO of Unilever put it this way, the very business of doing business has a huge impact on society. Three quarters of our sales revenue goes straight out again to pay for goods and services for suppliers. Of the wealth we create each year by adding value to those goods and services, around 70% of it is channeled back into society through employee wages, shareholder dividends, government taxes, community investments. We generate employment. For every job we create in Unilever, we indirectly create several more in our supply chains and distribution channels. There are other contributions as well. Private enterprise is an and participating in private enterprise is an important source of less tangible but vital factors, such as openness to ideas, innovation, opportunity, empowerment. 
You could also argue that when dynamic enterprises are allowed to flourish, they tap into people's initiative, their ingenuity and self-reliance. And when people can participate in an economy by creating or joining an enterprise, they gain voice. So modern business, then, has direct impacts on countries and communities, but it also has indirect impacts predominantly positive on the societies in which it operates. Now, this is what I'm calling invisible corporate citizenship. This is not discussed in company boardrooms. It's not what they intend to do. But if you look at the impact that they have, you can describe a number of profoundly important phenomena. Let me give you some examples um, a recent book written about China and India came up with this uh, statement, which I thought was very instructive. It wasn't just the jobs the Chinese were after. It was modernization itself. When foreign companies sought to open factories in China, the government insisted that they use and teach Chinese workers how to use their latest techniques. Flooding a technologically backward country with know-how and spurring a very quick industrial revolution. My favorite example comes from India. Nandan Nilakani is the CEO of Infosys, one of the global champions in IT coming out of Bangalore. And he was asked a few years ago, Mr. Nilakani, what do you think your greatest contribution is? He said, well, we've started this massive business with billions and billions of dollars, but I think our greatest contribution is that we've redefined the possible for India. There are many other examples, uh, more complicated. Uh, The professor at the Hong Kong Business School studied the impact of listing on the Shanghai Stock Exchange, and the many demands that companies made for the institutions and operations they needed from that society in order to list. So their intention was not to improve Chinese society, but to list on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. But in the process of doing that, they had various requirements. They needed auditors of good repute. They needed to know what the rules were of the game. They needed to know how information about their companies would be communicated to potential investors, which required some kind of free press or um, moderately free press to report on their companies. A whole lot of institutions that helped to, if you like, thicken civil society. Now, I can go on and on with examples that I found. This is an area that's not very well um, researched. But I would argue that in many respects, business, not because they set out to do this, but business in developing countries help to empower women. If you go into the whole debate about the so-called sweatshops in Asia, what you find is that predominantly or disproportionately women who work in these often horrible conditions in horrible jobs um, 
They often ask to work longer hours and overtime. They know that the, the number of years they can do these jobs is limited, and they tend to then save money and either go back to their rural areas where they now are independent, no longer under the thumb of their husband or father. They start a small business, sometimes servicing workers in the factory they've left, or a small business in the rural area. But the whole opportunity of getting a formal job, which to us looks awful, is in fact the best alternative open to them. And anyone who read the article on South Africa <clears throat> in yesterday's paper, where we are seeing this played out rather tragically at the moment, you will have noticed a quote from a woman in a factory that is not conforming with the minimum wage, and the government wants to close it down. What did she say? She said, I used, I used to be a domestic servant, but then the family moved away, and I went to work at a garment factory. <coughs> where she said, according to the journalist, I was treated with respect. The hours were shorter. The pay was better than being a domestic servant. I managed to start a small business selling shoes to other workers in the factory, and I saved enough money to build myself a house. Let me just briefly touch on some other issues. There's a lot of pressure on companies to get involved to do something about global poverty. Um, this is a, a rather strange conversation, both about the notions of development at work and the obligations people want to put on business. And I'm, there's just been this conference on the Millennium Development Goals, and many large companies have signed on to say, yes, whatever I do is contributing to the, achieving the Millennium Development Goals. One of the points I make in the book is that business should stop signing on to other people's agendas. They should work out what their agenda is with respect to development and promote that. If you look at the Millennium Development Goals, most of which are motherhood and who could oppose those, they're generally outcomes. They're not a strategy on how to achieve development. If you were to ask any multinational corporation wanting to work or invest in Africa, listen, what are the top three issues you think should be dealt with to make your life easier and more profitable and more likely that you would risk money in that continent? They would talk to you about the infrastructure for growth and how do I improve the environment, the enabling environment for business? But these aren't mentioned in the Millennium Development Goals. And the defining characteristic of a developing country government, well, any government probably, is how many priorities can you work on at once? Let's say three. Let's be generous. Say five. They wouldn't be those. They would be infrastructure. They would be an environment for growth. They would be a whole lot of things if it's any way decent a government. So I'm opposed to to this wholesale endorsement of other people's agendas and priorities for development. And in many ways, I think the ongoing conversation about business and society is dominated by the perspective and interests of activists who live in rich countries. 
Am I allowed to say formerly rich countries? Oh, sorry. Uh, now, most of these protagonists with living lives with hot and cold running water do not grasp the realities of poverty in developing countries and the hard choices of development outside the rich world. As a result, the debate about business responsibility and corporate involvement in development is distorted, and few voices from developing countries are heard. And I think we need a new discourse on how to think about business and the public good, business and society, but the current approaches are not very persuasive. I'm not going to go into one sort of chapter in my book, which is of interest to other audiences, I suspect not this one, on corporate social investment and how to use that money in a much more strategic way. Let me turn to what I'm calling the real business agenda. I think it's okay for business to talk about their own interests and some more honesty about that would be refreshing. Business has a profound interest in the nature of the societies, the communities in which they work. Stability is important, but also a whole range of other things, not only the enabling environment, but the quality of education or healthcare and so on that affects the workforce. Business also has a profound interest in how societies understand capitalism, and business. Some research was done recently by a Newsweek journalist on German textbooks and what they say about capitalism and business. And the results are stunning. If you're in an ordinary school in Germany or a reputable university, those textbooks are basically ascribing all manner of evils to companies and capitalism. I would think that companies should take a lot more interest in that issue. Business also has a profound interest in good governance. Um, And then lastly, um, I think companies have an interest in knowing who their enemies are and who their friends are, and preferably funding the former, not the, well, the latter, not the former. Now, when you say this to a business audience, they look at you with horror. But think back to the Seattle protests against globalization and remember that the World Wildlife Fund was there. And then name me a company that doesn't fund the World Wildlife Fund. Certainly not in the country in South Africa and in many other places. So let me end then with sort of protecting my back, if you like. Um, I've written a book in praise of enterprise and corporations. It's also a call on business leaders to stop apologizing and to stand up for competitive capitalism, especially in developing countries. But I wouldn't want you to be misled as to my position. I'm not what you might call a business fundamentalist, and I'm not saying that the only business of business is business. I'm also not a business apologist. In South Africa, for example, many other places, there are bad companies that do bad things. And I think business leaders should speak out about this. In South Africa recently, a group of companies were found uh, guilty by a competition commission for colluding to increase the price of bread. 
it really has an impact on poor people's lives. Um, I think business leaders should speak out about that. I think states are important. I should. Um, I thought about how to put this in the Cato Institute. Let me just put it this way, that if you live in a country with a weak state, the thought of anarchy is pretty scary. And I'm in favor of law and order, and I want the state to be strong enough to enforce that, not just for me. I can afford private security, but for poorer people who either have to resort to vigilantes or live a very fearful existence. So I'm in favor of effective states. I'm also a Democrat, and I'm in favor of people in horrible working conditions having the right to organize and to improve those in time, and we can see that happening in China at this very moment. So I'm really calling on companies and business leaders and their organizations to play a more thoughtful, strategic, involved role in the societies in which they operate. I believe that the past 50 years have seen smart states opening up their societies to more enterprise and more competition from local and foreign firms, and the result has been phenomenal. In the past 40 to 50 years, more people have moved out of poverty than ever before, and they have done this more quickly than we have ever seen. Business leaders should recognize the importance of the battle of ideas. And I think for them, one of the big challenges is how to change the conversation. Business is good for societies and essential for sustained development. The question is how can companies become more effective at making this case than they have been hitherto? We know they should stop apologizing for their very existence and they should stand up for business and what they do every day. The facts are on their side. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Anne. It is my pleasure now to introduce Clive Crook, one of the most uh, well-regarded journalists in the world. For many years, he was a deputy editor of the Economist uh, magazine. He is now a columnist at the Financial Times and at the National Journal, and he is also a senior editor at the Atlantic Monthly. I thought that he uh, was a particularly good pick for this panel discussion because he writes especially about the intersection of politics and economics. Welcome, Clive. Thanks. Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, I want to recommend uh, Anne's new book, um, I think it's, it's splendid. It's um, surprising and I think kind of shaming that somebody needed to write a book called The Case for Business in Developing Economies. I mean, it's worth thinking about in itself, isn't it? But they did need to be written. If you consider the vast uh, development literature and just how little of that is devoted to the role of business in development, it's actually quite extraordinary. And uh, if anyone was going to do this book... Um, I think it was very good that it was Anne because she's done it ever so well. It's full of um, acute observation. It's very well, very well argued, very convincing. A couple of points I'm a little bit skeptical about, which I'll come to in a moment, but I just want to amplify on the praise a little bit more before I do that. Um, the book explains what the problem is, and I think the, the explanation is basically 
basically right. There is a prevailing anti-business sentiment out there, and it is particularly strong in uh, development circles, uh, the suspicion of the profit motive. I think it's pervasive across um, the popular culture, but again, in particular, in the realm of development. Companies cannot just be allowed to get on with it. Um, They will enrich themselves at everybody else's expense if they do. And so development has to be highly managed so that uh, companies don't uh, screw everybody over. That is an extremely uh, destructive sentiment, and the book really gives chapter and verse on this. Um, It shows that the problem is real. It shows how influential that view has been in development circles and in development policy in many countries, and uh, it illustrates uh, the results, the terrible results that we've seen from that anti-business sentiment. Now, a good deal of the book is concerned with uh, criticizing uh, corporate social responsibility, uh, which is something uh, where I'm reluctant to defer to anyone. This is one of my favorite subjects. Um, I uh, devote a lot of time to tearing my hair over uh, CSR, and uh, I think this book is going to give me a break because I think it's more or less all been said in this book. I can take a breather now. There's no need, there's no need to devote any more energy to it. Uh, the CSR movement, I think, is uh, exposed in the book and critiqued very effectively. A very uh, prominent recurring theme in Anne's treatment of the subject um, is the fact that so much of the thinking on CSR comes from rich world NGOs uh, that are out of touch with the needs of developing countries. There are many illustrations, many instances of this in the book, and the cumulative effect is really very telling. Then the book looks in some detail at, at why it matters. Having laid out the problem, having described the problem and convinced you that there is a problem, it goes into some detail about why it matters and makes the positive case for business and explains just how indispensable to growth and development business really is. All that is splendid. One of the things I wanted to draw attention to is that the book, though, is, is nuanced. Um, my default position on CSR is close to Milton Friedman's uh, position, which is that the social responsibility of business is to make profits. That's all they really need to worry about, and in seeking to make profits, they will inadvertently make the rest of us better off. In a very interesting part of the book, Anne uh, qualifies that, although the sentiment of the book is very squarely in that direction. She qualifies it in an interesting way by saying, by pointing out, that that argument is far more plausible of in developed countries, in rich countries, than it is in poor countries. And she makes a couple of interesting points, and I just want to read a, a paragraph where she says that um, it's a little bit more complicated than that in developing countries. And she raises, actually, the six issues altogether, but let me just read you one paragraph. This view, she says, tends to ignore the situation of developing countries. Friedman argues that there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it stays within the rules of the game namely engaging in open and free competition without deception or fraud. However, in many poorer countries, there are no clear rules of the game. 
Companies can do secret deals and establish monopolies. They can exploit the absence of any rules at all. They can slant things so that the opportunities available to small and new businesses are harder than they would ordinarily be. Or they can take advantage of very weak rules to do many things that they would not get away with in more developed societies. She goes on and makes some other points. I think that's very... That's persuasive. That is correct. I mean, the, the, the standard argument, which I think is very difficult to resist intellectually for developed countries, is more complicated. Um, Western companies doing business in uh, countries with weak states or with outright failed states uh, are not able to take for granted a system of rules uh, within which all, their only responsibility is to follow the law and make money. You know, those ground rules don't exist in many countries, and that raises issues which the book goes into, and I think quite rightly. Now, let me turn, uh, in closing, uh, to uh, the issue where I'm a little bit more skeptical, and that is the, the part of the book that deals with uh, what Anne calls the agenda for business. I agree with the first part of what she says very much, which is that businesses should stop apologizing and stop appeasing. Um, I, wish, I wish they would do that. And in fact, when you look around and see the extent to which businesses feel it necessary to apologize for what they do, it's pretty staggering. Um, my, my favorite recent example is, is Bill Gates and his creative capitalism speech, um, in which, um, I mean, incredible as it may seem, he appears to set at zero the social welfare improving aspects of Microsoft Windows, of Microsoft the company. He seems to say that that's not enough. It isn't enough to have moved the world's production possibility frontier out and uh, improved everyone's prospects for better living standards. Only if the wealth that that has generated can be plowed back into uh, deliberately good social purposes can this uh, system called capitalism be redeemed. Now, uh, he's doing it himself, of course, with the Gates Foundation, which is private philanthropy. That's not corporate social responsibility, a very important distinction. But in, in his speech at that Davos meeting on creative capitalism, he called on other businesses not to create private philanthropies, but to engage in in good works as part of their ordinary course of business. Now, where I had that speech, I really was sort of having to pinch myself because, I mean, just picture Microsoft in its early days. Picture Bill Gates. Microsoft wouldn't even exist if Bill Gates had followed his own advice about how companies should be run. He was legendarily focused on um, building a profitable business, in fact, on building monopoly and driving his competitors out of business. I mean, he was notoriously ruthless, notoriously single-minded. Now, he made all that money, and now he is putting it back into philanthropy. That's wonderful. But there would be no Microsoft if he'd done what he calls on other businesses to do now, which is to build these socially redeeming uh, traits into capitalism on a day-by-day -day basis. So I think it, it's a great shame that even CEOs, even entrepreneurs as eminent and as brilliant as Bill Gates don't appear to understand the value that they themselves have created for society at large. And it would be a good thing, I think, if they reflected a little bit more about that and felt less need to apologize 
uh, for what they've done. But it's on the second part of, the, of Anne's agenda where I begin to be a little bit skeptical, and this is where she describes a more proactive sort of PR-aware agenda for businesses. She wants businesses to get out there, not merely to stop apologizing, not merely to stop acquiescing, but to organize, really, but to uh, advance uh, a coherent defense of capitalism and um, be more influential in the battle for ideas. Now, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about this for a couple of reasons. One is, although I would like to see uh, businesses uh, convey a better understanding of the value of capitalism, what if... Um, failing to do that, what if apologizing and appeasing actually turns out to be profit-maximizing? I think that is very likely to be true. In many cases, firms who pay lip service to CSR or who actually engage in, as it were, bona fide CSR activities are actually profit-maximizing. That's why they're doing it. Um, in my own mind, uh, I divide CSR activities up into four into four groups, four categories. I have a kind of two-by-two two matrix in my head. Is this particular CSR activity profit-maximizing or profit-improving? Yes or no. And is this particular CSR uh, activity welfare, social welfare-improving? Yes or no. So that gives you four cells. In the box where you have a CSR activity that's improving profits and improving welfare, I think of that as good management. That's ordinary capitalism. Then you have the box which neither improves profits nor improves social welfare. Think recycling, sorting your garbage. That I regard as delusional CSR. That doesn't serve any purpose. The other two boxes are more interesting. You have the... Uh, that category of uh, CSR, which raises welfare and which reduces profits. And I think there are such, there are, you know, that is not an empty box. There are things of that kind. Um, but I think of that as borrowed virtue. The problem with that box is actually a corporate governance issue. Who are managers to be engaging in philanthropy with other people's money, even if it's effective, and I'm conceding that in some cases it is, that it advances social welfare? Who are those guys to uh, indulge in that behavior? That surely raises an issue about um, corporate governance. If I'm a shareholder in a company, I would prefer it to make more money, and then I will choose what I do with the profits. That, I think, is the way it's supposed to work. But the fourth box is the one that concerns me on this issue of let companies get together and make a more effective case for capitalism. Now, this is the kind of CSR activity that improves profits but actually uh, reduces social welfare, and I call this pernicious CSR. And I think there's a great deal of it. Um, Actually, Anne mentioned a, a, a classic instance in her remarks, and that is when uh, big, successful companies get together to lobby governments to uh, tighten minimum wage regulation. Mm. This is very often an outright anti-competitive device. Uh, big companies can afford to pay uh, higher wages than small companies <clears throat> in many industries and in many cases. And if they succeed in 
having a minimum wage introduced or increased, they can put their smaller competitors out of business. Uh, that is pernicious CSR, and I think there's a, a good deal of this. One of my problems with the notion that in their own interests, companies should stop apologizing and appeasing is that, as I say, I think by apologizing and appeasing, they may very well be enhancing their own profits. It's good marketing. That is why they do it. But it may very well be welfare-reducing because it contributes to um, a broader sentiment of anti-capitalism that makes us worse off. So that's a problem. I'm not sure that you can say to businesses, you know, in your own interests, make this case, because very often it won't be in their interests to make it. And I think this applies even more so to, as it were, a more organized uh, business effort to turn uh, opinion around. I mean, the general point that one needs to keep in mind here, and, and the book, of course, is, is, is sound on this, is that uh, business interests are not the same thing as society's interests. And what, that when businesses band together, uh, as Adam Smith uh, first pointed out, um, their default activity is to organize a cartel and uh, reduce their competition. So I'm a, a little bit nervous about the idea that businesses should be encouraged to have more of a political voice, even if it's to advance a more sophisticated understanding of the way capitalism works. I think I myself would prefer to say, yes, it would be better if they stopped apologizing. It would be better if they stopped funding the opposition. Um, but I think that it, it, ideally they should recuse themselves from a more um, energetic attempt to advance uh, the case for capitalism, uh, and they should stay out of wider policy, policy debates. I don't, you know, when I listen to the complaints about the Obama administration being out of touch with business, and that what they really need is to replace Larry Summers at the NEC with a CEO. This does not give me a nice, warm feeling. I don't think we will have... We will get better government out of having a tame CEO uh, making the case for capitalism in the Obama administration. I'm rather nervous about that. The fact is, and of course it's a very, very difficult to do anything about it, but getting attitudes to business right um, is too important to be left to businesses. It's a matter of education. It's a matter of broader cultural enlightenment. It's a task for people like me in the media. It's a task for think tanks like Cato to make these arguments and engage in these debates. I think it's not, my, myself, I think it's not something that businesses themselves either can do or should try to do or be encouraged to do. Or that Reservation. I just want to urge you to, re to read this splendid book. Okay. Thanks very much, Clive. Uh, we have time for questions now, and if you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait to, uh, to be called and wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take the first question up front here. Yes, my name is Bert Kurovsky. Uh, I just wondered whether in this debate we are benefited from separating developing world from developed world. 
from the developing and undeveloping, the emerging, the submerging, there is a big confusion out there. I, I, I do think that that might take away the focus, especially when we're getting so much global regulations that are started affecting everyone all around. So, so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that we perhaps should not split it up in that sense. I want to comment on that. Okay. Do you want to speak one, one by one? Yeah. Okay. Can I answer from here? Yes, or? please. Uh, let me... Do you want me to respond to Clive now? Or? Yeah, go ahead and respond oh. to Clive now if you wish, and then okay. answer it. Um, I'll deal with your question first. It's easier. Um, I agree with you. I, I, what I'm saying about business, I think... And, and a large part of the book is applicable to business in any society. There are some specific areas, which, particularly where, which Clive pointed out, where, which is specific to developing countries. But I think in general the case for business can be made for all countries. It's easier to see in a developing country in some ways. So I'm not suggesting some artificial division. This was a, a publisher's idea of how to sort of put it across. I think, well, well, firstly, thank you for the kind words about the book. Um, you you pick the area where I think the book is the, at its weakest. I'm not sure I agree with everything that Clive raises. Um, I'm not suggesting that business people should get into politics. South Africa had experience of business people sort of saying, oh, we can fix this or that, and they were pretty useless, frankly. I think business people should stick to what they're good at. Um, having said that, they have enormous resources and of different kinds, from money to people. And I suppose what was in my mind but it is some, some way they can support institutions that can wage the battle for them. Um, so I'm not in favor of, gee, because you're a businessman, you should be the economic czar in the Obama cabinet. I think that's crazy. I agree with you. I also agree with you that sometimes you put business people together and they'll form a cartel. But some t That's true. But sometimes there are other issues at stake. And I suppose I am influenced by my South African experience where when a society that's important as a home base for leading companies is in trouble. Um, business people can find enough interests in common to, to look at the national interest. Uh, and that was what was in my mind. And if you think of the New York story of 25 years ago, you had a similar sort of thing. Um, so... I think you're right. It is a weak area, but I'm not comfortable with just saying stop apologizing and stop the appeasement. I also think that corporate social investment money should be distinguished in a way. You know, there's how do we fix the education system in country X where little projects don't make much impact and business tends not to evaluate what they do and overclaim. That's one sort of area where I think one can get more bang for the buck in terms of individual companies finding more effective ways to impact education. 
I would distinguish that from, let's call it, more strategic use of money into think tanks, policy, um, research, and research like on what did the textbooks say in countries around the world about business. I think that you could do that through others. Um, so that, that would be where I would end up, I think. Right there. Right there. No, uh, second row there. Hello. Yes. Uh, Phil Harvey is my name. I'm, I wonder if perhaps both of you could address this issue. Why do you think so many uh, developing country governments are so resistant to uh, the uh, ideas and the power of free market capitalism when we have so many examples uh, it, it, you'd almost think it would snowball all of the Asian tigers and now China and now India, Vietnam and so on who, uh, whose poverty programs are basically uh, free markets and yet uh, we see the extraordinary uh, phenomenon of Ethiopian farmers unable to own their own land and at the same time the Ethiopian government is issuing 99-year leases to Indian agriculturists to come in and grow food. It's, it's bizarre. And I, I just wonder why you think uh, so many uh, governments of so many really poor countries, particularly African countries, resist these ideas so persistently. Shall I go first? Um, well, I think, of course, of, of course you're right. You, maybe you... you underestimate the extent to which uh, th this change is happening. I mean, I think, you know, the success, success in China and success in India has changed. I mean, right there you have two mass, you know, massively significant developments in terms of, in terms of global gr growth and global uh, relief of poverty. I mean, if, even if nobody else did anything, you know, you, that's billions of people right there. Uh, but I think the lesson has been learned and in many in many developing countries, uh, you know, liberalization, I think, now has become the conventional wisdom, almost with, um, you know, with Western development institutions leaning the other way, almost saying not so fast, you know, <coughs> it's more complicated than you think. A Africa, I mean, of course, Anne can say more about this, but my, my, my answer would be that Africa is is sui generis, but there are so many kleptocracies in Africa that that is what, that is, what is really going on, that you have systems where uh, the people in charge are dedicated to protecting their own, their own power, their own political power at, at the expense of um, their people. And in Africa, many governments continue to get, to get away with that. Um, I don't think it's a sort of ideological conviction or ca calculation that they've got a better development model. It's just um, pure, pure rapacity, you know, pure kleptocracy in many cases. Yes, I, I, I agree with Clive. Um, I think you also have the weight of vested interests, um, and one shouldn't underestimate how hard it is to be a reform to be a reformist is difficult. Uh, it requires courage and, and vision to make it happen. So I think it's not easy. You might see the right way forward, but it requires a determination 
to deal with vested interests and to push through that, that not all that many people have. So I think that's one thing. Um, and we haven't, you know, that might be the model is clear. I agree with you, uh, clearish. But rules for reformers are not as clear. I think we've, there's less work done on that and less clarity on which reforms should I introduce first and how to win people over and get enough people on the side of reform um, to, to counterbalance the people who favor the status quo. So I think reform is hard. I'm equally concerned about are we going to see the sort of lure of this, you know, the Chinese, the Beijing consensus, which is going to be interpreted as a non-democratic kind of opening up state capitalism, some kind of murky capitalism. I think that's going to be followed more easily because many people are not Democrats by nature, and this gives them an excuse. And it seems to be, at the moment, extremely successful with if you like, democratic Anglo-Saxon capitalism looking bruised or dented, less, less appealing than it was. So I think that's going to be a big worry for the next while. Yes, in the back. I think whether it's a socialism or capitalism, I think at the moment it's really a responsibility or a really mutual benefit for the individual agree or their potential benefits or whatever aim they want to achieve. And I am proud of Bill Gates of his talents and achievement. But one of the problems is how much wealth or benefit that Microsoft and Bill Gates they really receive from taxpayers' money. And the other thing is that currently the essence of capitalism is really destroyed because by that, I think capitalism is you should have a fair competition. Everybody give the same chance of their opportunity, but currently like tax system or the subsidies or bank bailout, everything is just sort of using the false excuses to benefit really a few. For CEO, they got billions of bonuses put into the pocket and then ask for government for bailout. I think that is not called capitalism. I think really to me that's robberism. So I just wonder if we can do something. I think currently NGO or labor union, they are not doing good. The approach because what they are asking to raise a little bit of minimum wage and compared to those bear out it's just hopeless. So I just wonder, can we really do something more progressive? Currently, progressive organization they are not really doing things. You ask your question, please. So my question is really, can we do something movement really go beyond currently what they call is progressive agenda? Thank you. <laughs> well, you said a couple of a couple of things. I th I think I agree with. Um, you know, the the point you make about competition uh, is critical, and it it, it goes to uh, the reservations I expressed in my in my comments about businesses getting together and advancing a political agenda. When they do that, 
you know, what they really have in the crosshairs is competition. They, they, you know, they, they want to reduce it. And I think one of the most important jobs gov of, of government in the economic realm is to insist that firms compete with each other because it's competition that actually delivers the benefits of the invisible hand. If you don't have competition, then capitalism doesn't work. So I agree with you about that. And I also think I agree with you about what you said on excessive CEO pay. It seems to me that there is a real problem there. There is a, that looks to me like a corporate governance failure when you see uh, CEOs essentially screwing over their shareholders. Uh, something, something has gone wrong, I think, with the market for uh, top executive pay. What, quite what you do about it, I'm not sure. I think that's difficult. But, but there is a problem when a CEO is completely incompetent and drives his company into the ground and costs his shareholders hundreds of millions of dollars and then walks away with a colossal uh, separation payment. Something has gone wrong in that market. So I agree with those observations, but um, I can't find it in my heart to help you advance a progressive agenda. It's not really, in, it, not really what I'm interested in doing. I, I would just add to that that, in addition, I think there is a global war for talent. So if I look at South Africa and, many, and Africa and many other developing countries, we're desperately short of skilled people and increasingly... We need more and more skilled, numerate people to, to, to perform the jobs we want in a modern economy. So societies have to fix their education and training systems. So the pipeline is delivering more and more people. Um, one of the reasons that the gap between workers in, and professionals in South Africa is so large is because we don't import more skills, which we should do. We are competitive with certain parts of the world. We should be flooding the country with more skilled people, which would help to bring down the price of the skilled people we have. And we also have, at the bottom end, if you like, we don't create low-wage jobs. So um, you've got to change that. You've got to change the rules by which our labor market is structured and the regulations and... We need to be a much more attractive place for low-wage jobs. Um, what you do, I agree. I don't. What you do about <clears throat> the very high salaries that CEOs get is um, is a is a challenge. I don't have an easy answer. Although lots of people don't complain about the enormous salaries film stars get or sports stars get. Why, why do we find it so offensive with companies? It is offensive when they ruin a company and walk away with a massive package. I agree. And that is corporate governance. So I, society does put an enormous premium on certain kinds of people, which is crazy. It's so out of the realm of what's, what's realistic that, that it does seem offensive, but I don't have an easy solution to that either. I think Clive raises an interesting point. What, what about the case in which uh, corporate social responsibility is actually profit maximizing? Then that seems to be a good uh, business uh, decision. Uh, my concern is that oftentimes it's not easy to know when it is profit maximizing, and a lot of business leaders probably think that most of what they're doing is profit maximizing. It seems to me that the message that Anne is making is that the, 
that much, maybe almost all of what goes under the name of corporate social responsibility is not profit maximizing, therefore it doesn't make any sense. How do you know that and how do you convince the uh, business leaders that that is the case when they very well may be convincing themselves otherwise? Let me respond to that. Um, there's a wonderful quote I found in one of the few rigorous books on corporate social responsibility that exists. A man, a professor at Berkeley whose views are different from mine, but it was a serious academic book. And he quotes um, a former CEO of Heinz, the Heinz Company, who was once asked, tell me, when you have the dolphin-free tuna on the shelf and the ordinary tuna on the shelf, what happens? And the CEO said this, which I thought was really, it was definitive. He said, if the dolphin-free tuna is one cent more than the other tuna, people don't buy the dolphin-free tuna. The number of people who buy is so minuscule as to be almost irrelevant. And... You know, if you look through the so-called literature in this field, which is not, you know, of wonderful empirical standard, you look through all the anecdotes, the stories, all the companies who say things, it's really very few consumers who vote with their, if you like, who shop with their heart rather than their head. It's not what I think, but that's how you could describe it. It's a fear. There's a fear that it could really snowball and affect us. That's what drives companies. But I think you've got to distinguish between, I think the vast majority of corporate social money is spent defensively. In other words, the fashion is I've got to be green. Okay, I'll say whatever you want me to say. Tick, 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 and I'll do it. And if you're a good company, you can actually find some savings. So there, is, there are some efficiencies to be found. Some South African companies, you know, have told me how they now save their electricity bill by 40% or whatever. That's great. Who can be opposed to that? But that's just being a good company. Uh, so I think a lot of the money is spent defensively. You've got to be part of the herd. You've got to look like everyone else and not stick out. But don't forget the companies playing this game are a very small percentage of global multinationals. They're the visible ones. Now, again, the literature is not very clear. This book claimed that it's something like two to 3,000 multinationals across the world who play the game. And just below are all those multinationals and privately held companies and medium-sized companies that I've never heard of and probably none of you have heard of who ignore a lot of this. They might adapt some of the efficiencies. They tend to be to put philanthropy money into their local community, but they're not playing this kind of global, a very weird game that is going on in the global media, global activists located in rich countries, and then, if you like, their satellites often funded by them in the developing countries. So I'm... I don't. I think it's defensive. A lot of it, and then there is another part of it which Clive's defining more as philanthropy. In my experience, that it's we're going to devote X amount to the local community or the country on education or whatever, and sometimes spent well and sometimes badly. 
And it, in part, it's so we look like a nice company. We're good citizens. Uh, sometimes it is licensed to operate. It's part of I have to be to get the license to stay in in Ghana. I have to do A, B, and C in the local community and the, the country because in that way I'll keep it. I don't know if I believe half of it because the same country will then get into bed with a Chinese company that isn't doing any of this. So what's real and what isn't, this is a very murky world, and companies overclaim. They tell you they spend X amount on all of this when half of it is their PR and marketing. It's not going into a local community. So this is an extraordinarily difficult field in which to get some sort of rigor, (laughs) The data isn't there, and how do you do it? It spreads all over the world, and it's, it's all... So this is very... Um, it's murky, all of it. And I'm not sure... I'd need to think harder about Clive's four boxes, but I, I want to go away and think about that. I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with those distinctions and, and how I see it, certainly from the world I know best in Thank South you. Africa. We'll take another question. Right there in the aisle. Take a question right here in the aisle, please. Can you raise your hand? Hi, my name is Anka. I'm with Atlas Economic Research Foundation. And Mr. Crook, you talk about the disconnect between Bill Gates' um, ruthless business practices and um, the business practices he advocated in Davos. I'm not sure that it was really so innocent or just a more subtle way of making sure his competitors wouldn't rise to his capital. <laughs> Maybe it was. Um, my question is, is, it seems that most of the these 2,000 or 3,000 established, established multinationals are just maybe using in some way CSR the same way that developed countries are using the global standards to make sure that their less developed competitors will not reach the same level of development or establishment as a business. And I was wondering what you think about that. I, I think it's, it's true. I mean, to, I, I think there's a, there's a good deal of that. Um, but I do resist the idea. I mean, I agree with Anne, you know, the, 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 the boundaries um, in, that, in that box I described, you know, in that matrix mm-hmm. are fuzzy. And I think a lot of a lot of CEOs are themselves confused. Um, when I, you know, when I've written about CSR and I, I've been researching articles about it and interviewing CEOs, I, I find, you know, my kind of assessment is that there is a mixture. I mean, some CSRs really do really do believe in CSR. You know, they believe that, you know, they're under a moral obligation to give something back to society. Some CEOs give CEOs give me the impression that they actually don't understand. I mean, I know this, this sounds contemptuous. I don't mean to sound that way. But they sound to me as if they don't understand elementary economics. They don't actually believe that ordinary capitalism is welfare improving. They feel that they need to do something else, uh, you know, to justify the profits they're making. Other CEOs, I think, are much more... Uh, uh, sophisticated on on the economics, but feel that they have to do CSR either to get themselves a license to operate, or because they just regard it as a very effective marketing expenditure. 
And then still other CEOs, I think, are just completely cynical about it and, and do see an, oppor- an opportunity to stick it to the competition. And that's what it's about. I think all these things are going on out there. Mm. Um, but on Gates, I'm, I think Gates, although I, you know you're, what your cynical observation made me smile, I think Gates has now got religion. You know, now that he's made his billions, I think he is absolutely sincere in wanting to do good in the world. And um, it just so happens that, in my view, what he says about capitalism is, is just wrong. Uh, but I think he does believe it. I don't question his sincerity. We have time for just two quick questions and two answers. We'll take one here. Uh, Tony Carroll, I'll just make a comment on Ethiopia. I think the issue in Ethiopia is a very calculated political decision. I think the government fears a, a great influx of people to the cities, uh, people that will tend to go to the cities, the 60 million peasants that live inside of Ethiopia will probably not be supportive of the government in power right now. So I think it's a calculated decision by the government to try to keep uh, the rural areas populated and, and prevent a, a migration, mass migration to, uh, my, to urban areas. So I think it's a calculated political decision. Uh, one of the problems, I do a lot of work in the extractive industries and, and in particularly in Africa. I think one of the problems is that most of the entry points in Africa for, uh, for global companies is in the extractive industries area, whether it be mining, oil and gas, now agriculture. And I think that there's just a lot of uh, visibility, if you would, to their activities that tend to be surfaced and, and captured by the NGO community. But, Ann, I've, I bought your book uh, previously. I ordered it. I haven't had a chance to read it. I, I teach at SICE, and so I'm so trying to keep up on my reading there. But I will get to read it. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question about South Africa. I'm frequently in South Africa. I help organize the mining and Daba every year in, in Cape Town. And um, I'm wondering about the voice of business in the current South Africa. I assume that you worked for the South Africa Foundation before. No. But making the case in the apartheid era that apartheid is bad for business was one that was made. I'm wondering about now in South Africa that the uh, arguments that business is good for South Africa from a social overall social development perspective uh, is not effectively being made. And I'm wondering why that is. And South Africa seems to be at a turning point right now, uh, even last week with the, with the uh, current uh, union activities. I'm just wondering a comment, if you would, on your own country. Yes, let me make two comments. Uh, I want to just say something about Bill Gates, uh, the, the phenomenon. It is a remarkable phenomenon that you put business leaders who are vicious in competition, um, you put them into a discussion on anything to do with development, poverty, developing countries, and they become, well, I don't know, socialists, social wealth, they're welfareist. They kind of collapse about the market, where in fact they should be the very people talking about how effective markets can help poor people. We've just completed a very interesting study in South Africa on private schools for the poor, where it turns out that something like 15% of kids are now in, in very poor communities in private schools. Their parents are voting with their feet against a terrible education system and are prepared to pay what for them is a serious amount of money. Now, there is a, these are edupreneurs who are kind of responding to demand. And I think that's really interesting. And it's exactly what businesses and business leaders should know a lot more about. So I think you have that very odd phenomenon of which Gates was 
the most prominent example. Also Buffett, by the way, when he announced he was giving away all this money and then he was interviewed and he said, oh, markets have failed the poor um, in developing countries. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's stunning. Uh, let me talk a bit about business in South Africa. Um, I think South African business didn't quite know how to deal with democracy. And for many of them, they thought, if we just get into bed with Mr. Mandela, everything will be fine. Took a few years to realize that wasn't, life wasn't that simple. And then they thought, well, we've got a very difficult environment. You have issues of race. The largest companies tended to be controlled by white South Africans, um, although this has moved very rapidly. But for whatever reasons, they were not encouraged to speak out under the Mbeki regime, and they, were, they didn't. I think in some ways they were the last, last men standing next to Mbeki as his party rejected him, which is crazy. A few of us argued against this, but were not very successful. They have rethought, and they're, well, they're trying. Here are the other problems of collective action come in. These are not people who are good at working together. They don't play well together. So They're also struggling to survive as either globally um, and, you know, in a harsh kind of global world. I don't think business leaders have found the right mode of engaging. Many black South Africans who are now part of business are only half part. They're part A and C, and that's how they've got the position, and there are starting to be some real black business people emerging. What kind of middle class South Africa is creating is a very important question. To what extent it's entrepreneurial and independent of the state and to what extent it's dependent on who you know in the state is a, is a very a, a vital issue and it's busy changing just at the moment. Um, so we have a plethora of business organizations, many of which are completely useless at representing business interests, and some of the, the race issue affects that. So, uh, so that's a very complicated situation. It's not easy. Uh, I would certainly personally want individual business leaders to speak out more than they do in their own interests. And the one collective body that I think is pretty good is starting to learn its lesson and is starting to speak out more. So the recent threats on media freedom uh, and the debate on that, um, business leaders did speak out in a way they hadn't previously under the Mbeki regime. So this is a long story. I could go on forever, but it's quite complicated. Um, on the other hand, they do fund me. So, and they let me say anything I want. Um, so, and they get more money, not less, than I used to. So you have to put that in perspective. <laughs> well, I hope your book will make uh, more of a difference in South Africa. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, so please uh, 
Join me in thanking both of our speakers today. And join us upstairs for a luncheon.